Welcome to Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you this evening? I'm doing good, John. How are you today? I am, all things considered, doing fairly well. Uh, thank you also for asking. Um, the this uh, this episode is probably going to be coming out towards the end of January, um, and I thought that for a January tends to be a sort of a, a gloomier uh, winter month coming off the heels of the holidays. Uh, and at the time, I thought, you know, we could... Well, last last month's episode was about movies that sort of like your reaction to them was so heartwarming and it meant so much to you that I wanted to try and replicate uh that feeling uh with something that meant that much to me and i thought that with january being usually a more depressing month um that uh the films of ingmar bergman would be a good uh a nice fit to talk about in the january months and i made that decision (laughs) in late december and then like all of the u.s insurrection shit happened (laughs) and i was like oh dear god (laughs) <laughs> like this, this no one has time to be depressed when we're just frightened uh yeah. so i'm sorry we should have picked friday the 13th or some shit uh um well the good news but, is as as we're recording this it is uh it's the 23rd uh the insurrection is a few weeks past uh we have now inaugurated our new president of the united states here in america uh, a whole bunch of things have started to kind of move, hopefully in a positive direction. Um, there is still a cornucopia of craziness uh, and insanity to be found. Um, the apocalypse is probably not quite averted, maybe just delayed. So I still think with everything said, uh, the theme of Bergman is probably an appropriate choice for the uh, for our, our, our 2021 kickoff for Cinema Duel John. So <laughs> I think yeah. whether it was prescient or not, you made the right decision. I think, uh, yeah, I think this episode's uh, movies and uh, uh, the the themes of Bergman of like just sort of that repression and that sort of it, it, it feels a bit off uh, given the insanity of uh, even this week of uh, all the Bernie memes we've been uh, just absolutely bombarded with. But uh, hey, this is still good shit and uh, we're going to talk about it. Do you want to give any sort of like uh, your history with Bergman before we get started? Sure. So, um, I think probably like a lot of people, at least here, um, in, in the U S and around my age, I certainly didn't grow up with Bergman. Um, but I grew up with his influence because being kind of a cinema nerd growing up in the seventies, eighties and nineties, I was a huge fan of Woody Allen, uh, who, you know, idolizes and fetishes Bergman to a, Ridiculous uh, extent. Uh, and while my fervor for the films of Woody Allen have uh, very much cooled, uh, you know, the more stuff comes out and, and you start to see themes that maybe once you take a closer look are probably not uh, really the type of thing that you want to go for. It did at least help me to go, wow, you know, look at this beautiful black and white cinematography. He was using this guy, Sven Nykus, who we will talk about, and I probably killed that name, but, uh, oh, he was Bergman's, um, cinematographer for many films. Oh, uh, you know, he has this, uh, really interesting, um, couple of films that are direct kind of lifts from Bergman. In fact, the pick that I'm going to talk about, um, very much was an influence of one of, uh, Woody Allen's earlier films. So that's where I kind of came into it. Um, 
got the itch and then started digging into probably what a lot of people think of when they think of Bergman. They think of that kind of late 50s to mid 60s period, starting with uh, one of the films that we're going to talk about, your pick, and then kind of moving on to um, some pretty heady, heavy fare that not only thematically is a lot to chew on, but also from a visual and technical perspective is a lot, lot to chew on. So I, I, I'm not a Bergman fanatic. I do like the gentleman's films quite a bit. Um, I have my preferences here and, and there. Um, and that's really it. It, he's kind of one of those, he's a giant of the cinema. Um, and he's one that I admire for such. Um, I connect to some of his films though, much more than others. So it'll be an interesting conversation when we talk about the, the two we have here. Cause I, I, especially on rewatching, um, I come away a little bit with a different perspective than I had when I was maybe first diving into the gentleman's films. And I keep calling him a gentleman. I don't know. I think that's just the mood I'm in today, John. What that's about you? Okay. Where did you first uh where did you first start with, with Bergman? Well, and I think this will uh this will come up in our with our first uh film uh more, but essentially my intro to Bergman was sort of a lot of people's intro to Bergman, which was uh the Seventh Seal. And my feelings towards Bergman, generally speaking, are actually tied up largely in the Seventh Seal. Like there, there is definitely some other films of his that I've uh, that I like and appreciate, and I've started to like casually just sort of like pick away at his filmography. But the, I mean, other than the fact that he has a, a massive, massive filmography, I think probably the most of any director we've covered so far, possibly. Yeah. Um, there's definitely moments where like there'll be movies where i'll be like okay i like this i don't like this like it, it it's it kind of it shouldn't be mistaken the man has made some like absolute masterpieces uh as far as film goes but then there's also stuff where i'm like i didn't connect with this at all um and so uh fortunately uh i'm fond of both movies that uh, uh that we that we're gonna be talking about tonight but uh it feels like this feels like if we're talking about like we are our our preview episode from years back was on Kurosawa. Our first episode was on Tarkovsky. If we're going to talk about like as the a segue Titans into our, yeah, if we're talking about yeah, if you're if you want to become a film nerd, the someone hands you a copy of the Seventh Seal and it's like okay, start with this. Um, and I feel like that's probably uh, for its sort of like accessibility for people who want to get started into uh getting into 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 movies like this this is a great place to start with and so uh i thought it would be and for other reasons why i think it's actually worth the accolades why don't we get started with uh talking about the seventh seal So, The Seventh Seal. It's a 1957 historical fantasy film about a knight who comes back from the Crusades, is real uh, real mad, and is about to die, and so he challenges death to a game of chess. If you have never heard of The Seventh Seal, uh, if you have never seen any of the iconic images from this movie, at the very least, you should be familiar with the parody of... Uh, of this movie from Bill and Ted's bogus journey uh, in which uh, Bill and well, actually uh, Bill and Ted three as well uh, as of 2020 where uh, 
where Bill and Ted play chess, uh, play various games against death. That's how sort of, I guess, iconic and uh, sort of far-reaching, far-lasting this movie's impact has is that uh, 30 years, uh, 30 to 40, 50 years after the fact that some dumb stoner <laughs> comedy, which I love dearly, to be clear, um, is able to pull off a... Uh, reference to a 57 1957 uh, Swedish film about death uh is that uh out of curiosity Chris with with Seven Seal did you did you first hear about it through Bill and Ted or did you come at it like the way um you know as a film person I came that was, at that it, was my intro yeah so I came at it um I probably already knew about it by the time I had seen Bill and Ted's bogus journey I probably came to it through Woody Allen again um yeah. Most specifically, I, I think Love and Death, um, because if there's another famous scene beyond the the chess game between Death and Max von Sydow, um, it's the very literal dance of death, which occurs at the end of the film, uh, yeah. which um, Woody Allen parodies in Love and Death. So I probably was there first. It's still definitely it is very much the first Bergman film I had ever seen once I got around to Bergman, though. I think it was fun because when I finally got around to watching it and seeing the chess game, I was like, oh, okay. And I think like just something clicked in like growing up watching The Simpsons, for example, like a lot of references uh, would fly over your head as a kid. And then you go back and watch them as adults. You're like, oh, they weren't making that joke up. That's actually a reference to something older. Uh, well, that, so you know, that's an interesting point and, and something that I really enjoy the older I get, and I, I think this will happen for everybody who loves films. The older you get, obviously, the more films you see and the more you become exposed to. And then when you come back and you revisit something like The Seven Seal, which is so in influential, you start to make connections that you never made previously just because of other films you've seen. Um, and I, I can't verify whether this was a true influence or not, but one of the things watching the film this time that I was immediately kind of struck by was um, parallels to. Um, Monty Python, uh, particularly Monty Python and the Holy Grail with, uh, the, 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 uh, self-flagellation and just like the comedic bits there. Um, watching this film, you know, a week or two ago and seeing the scene of the uh, penitent religious sect who is coming and thrashing not only, um, the, uh, the congregation, but also themselves. All of a sudden I'm like, Oh, you know what? This, this reeks of Monty Python. Why is it reek of Monty Python? Because of, you know, scenes that they, they, that they took as, as, as kind of the influence for comedy they would do later. So it's really interesting when you think of like, yeah, like Monty Python, The Simpsons, this film, um, regardless of how you consider it now, this film had, this film has influenced everyone. Um, whether it's direct or indirect, it's just a massive, film in terms of its influence on other filmmakers and other pieces of art moving forward fair enough um and just uh because uh i i think it's probably good for us to flesh out the the general plot uh because yeah. it's not that it's not necessarily that complicated it's it's a very episodic movie in that uh there's sort of like scenes that happen in different places as the night goes on its journey but if to to like even slightly flesh out the plots uh, a bit um yeah the 
the the knight is played by Max von Sydow. Uh, his name is Antonius Block, and him along with his squire Johns, uh, played by the amazing Gunnar Bjornstrand. Uh, is that how you say it? Bjornstrand. That's how I'll say it because we're going to talk about him a lot. In yeah. This oh God, are, are we? Uh, <laughs> the uh, they are have returned from the Crusades. They are in various states of uh, cynicism and uh, disillusionment with the, everything related to religion. And they're approached by death who says, it's time for you to go. And, uh, and the knight thinks that he can basically save his life by beating death at chess and that they play a little bit and then the game stops and then they go on their journey a little bit where they find some people and then they play the game some more and so on and so forth. It's basically every so often they'll play a little bit more in their chess game and then they journey further um, where they meet more people. They're they're sort of they form this little like cadre of like journeying folks who adventure together and all of their how everyone relates to each other. And then sort of the game comes to a conclusion. And uh, so and again, the, the plot is fairly it's fairly straightforward. There's not necessarily, uh, you're not going to be surprised by too much of it, I think, but where this movie deals, uh, and deals with the most, I think is sort of the, the, the themes, the very directly stated, this mo- this is a movie about, uh, on, in a very literal sense, the fear of death. Um, this is also a movie about, uh, sort of, well, if we take uh, Max von Sydow's character to be an analogy for Bergman himself, his uh, his religious faith or his struggles with his faith, um, uh, and then and what I was not as actually remembering for the last time I did is how much there's how much commentary there is on the uh, the organized institution of the church uh, that's played as commentary here. So. Uh, Chris, like what, uh, what still holds for you in this movie? Like, where do you want to, where, where is most of your energy for this movie coming from? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, the, the, the takeaway I have from this movie now, and I'll say this. Uh, so I, I, I still think the movie is fantastic. Um, I don't want to say that it's lost its glamour for me a little bit, but the thing that really strikes me about the film and you, you, you hit upon it when you're doing your summary it's not a hard film to understand. It's it's very simple, and it actually because of its episodic nature and the inevitability of its of its ending, it's not a hard film to to really get through. This is a film about a person who's just come back from a religious war and has lost his his faith and his belief in God, which very much parallels what Bergman had been struggling with for a long time. There's uh, the anecdote about uh, he was raised by a very strict religious father who was a rector for his church. And this this movie is very much just a question of faith uh, versus belief. I, I have done all this stuff. I have lost the, you know, my, my, my faith and my belief in a just God. Um, death comes to him and said, well, it, it's your time. And really the chess game is uh, an, an attempt for Block to kind of prolong death long enough for him to refine his faith, which he does in the, um, in the meeting and association with this kind of rural traveling kind of circus group. It's, it's, it's really just three, three people, four, if you count the nude baby, <laughs> but, um, uh, it's, it's, it's how he meets this, 
this group and how their life is so different from his and how he finally kind of learns to find, um, find his faith and find his belief in the joy of living. Uh, this isn't hard <laughs> to understand. Yeah. Um, the other thing that is, that's really interesting, the apocalyptic themes, what, the thing that really holds me now that I've drawn to with this movie is the time period. So it's done in medieval times, and we can talk about the authenticity or, or lack thereof of the uh, medieval setting, but this was done, to your point, in 1957. This is just over 10 years after we've launched atomic bombs, and kind of the nuclear fear, the threat of an apocalypse of an Armageddon is, is very real to Europe at this point, which is still kind of rebuilding itself after World War II. And even though Sweden you know, maybe wasn't as directly impacted by that, that fear is still there. So it's interesting to think of how this film played out in that time period. Um, watching it now, for me, it's all about the performances. It's all about how gorgeous the cinematography is. Um, I was stunned to find out that not a lot of it was actually filmed on location. A lot of it was studio shots, except for the obvious kind of beach and outdoor scenes mm. with, with death and Max von Sydow. But uh, when I come back to it now, I come back to those things. I, I don't come back to the depths of the themes because what I've kind of come to realize now is they're not really hard to find. They're, they're so on the surface. This is as much as this is a medieval movie about a man playing chess with death. Uh, you know, for his life, for his salvation, um, it's not a hard movie to understand. And I kind of love it for that. Um, so even though it doesn't hold me now like some of Bergman's other films do, I still love it for what it did at the time, for how clear it is, for how purposeful it is, and for how successful it is with what he's trying to do, which is to kind of wrestle with these conflicting things of faith versus belief versus what does it mean to live? What do you live for? Is there something still worth living for in a world that's kind of gone crazy? Uh, in the film, it's the plague, but in real life, it's it's the you know, the pervasive threat of nuclear arm Armageddon, at least at, at the time. Um, so that in a nutshell is kind of what I take away from it. There's a lot to kind of poke into with different performances and, and uh, sequences, but, uh, but that's where I'm at with it, John. <laughs> no, that's fair. Um, I think for me, the, the immediacy and accessibility of the themes of the movie is sort of why, Especially as a, I think this is why this is a great, like, uh, not this and this is, I don't mean this pejoratively at all, like baby's first art house movie. Like this is like a great entry point for that. And it was for me too, specifically for that reason, because you can go watch, you can watch it and you can get what it's about. Um, <clears throat> and the fact that it is so artfully done with the the cinematography and the, and the performances and stuff that it is just sort of directly aimed at something that if it's fairly upfront about what it is about then it doesn't lose to me at least i don't feel it loses its uh, power for being like it's not if it's if it's like it's if it's obvious it's not shallow i guess um, exactly oh no not at all yeah 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 and 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 personally like reflecting on my own sort of uh uh trials in and through and around uh various religious upbringings and stuff the part like that that resonated with me when I saw it and I watched it again a couple days ago and I was like oh yeah yeah no this all still 100% tracks um, the moment when he's 
the moment when he's praying like this is earlier in the movie when he's praying he's like i really would like to have my faith sort of taken away from me i don't like it like i don't want to have it but it's still there mm-hmm. um and for a lot of people being able to say like well you just just don't like you can stop and uh the response is well no actually i can't uh f- and and for for reasons that i i find a, a kinship i think with bergman in that uh in that struggle or at least in that moment in his life uh i've never actually really looked too deep into how things ended up settling out for him i don't think he i think eventually he did actually uh walk away from that faith but you know it was it was a nice is a nice moment where I can be like, or even if I don't feel that as, as strongly as I used to now that I'm, you know, a bit older, it's, it's nice to go back and, you know, be like, if I had watched, like, if I had watched this when I was like in high school, my brain would have short circuited. Now that being <laughs> said, uh, Max von Sydow, absolutely wonderful. Um, but let's talk about John's the squire. Yeah, because uh, he because he is someone I really like too, and and part and a good part of that is because of uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, who like having watched a, a, a lot of uh, Bergman uh, over the last, especially this this last week. Uh, this this guy's everywhere. He does <laughs> phenomenal work with Bergman on a consistent basis. Well, that's the great thing about Bergman. I, I mean, if you're going to say anything about Bergman beyond his technique as a director, the guy can run a cast. And he has a, I don't want to call him a stock set of players because stock is doing a complete injustice to the caliber of people that Bergman has surrounded himself with for most of his, his career. When you have Gunnar Bjornstrand, when you have Max von Sydow, when you have B.B. Anderson, and that's just to name three people in this film, um, two of which will reappear in our next film. I, I, I mean, every person is fantastic. The way that Bergman frames them, the way that the angles of their face or the way that he lights them. Um, he's always been fantastic, but, but I'm right with you. The, the, the whole Max von Sadao gets a lot of, he, he is that, he, he is death in a way itself. He's just this lean, tall, gaunt figure. He's all angles. He's all planes, um, of chiseled stone or glass in his features. And he is the tormented soul in this movie. And, and, and John's Gunnar Bjornstrand is, is the exact opposite. He's the, he's the id. He is the kind of life is what it is. And I'm going to take it where I can get it. And I'm going to live it the way that I need to live it. Um, he is kind of right in the middle between Antonius Block and the um, troop that we come up with, with later. And it, it is, it's a phenomenal performance, especially when you think about, and I don't want to say what the, the other movie is going to be, but this comes two years after the other movie, which stars Gunnar Bjornstrand in a, completely different role. So to see him be able to play not only a knave, but just this jaded world weary guy who is very realistic. Um, I don't want to say that he's kind of base cause he's not base at all. He's extremely intelligent, extremely sharp, but he, in a way that Sadao doesn't for me, drives this movie forward. He's, he's just delicious in this role. I would say that, uh, dare I say it, I think that Gunnar Bjornstrand is the Anton Walbrook of this episode. Um, he is, uh, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have said that while you were Wonderful drinking. Wonderful back this. to the last episode. He is the Anton um, Walbrook of this episode, without a doubt. 
Well, and actually, to do another callback, I think that an interesting parallel I see in this movie is uh, for for uh, for Antonius Block. Like he is the character with like, he is the the main guy, but there is the way that the the stories and the cast sort of come together and move through these different adventures. Um, it reminds me a bit of Andre Rublev a bit um, in that the story, he's sort of the anim, like he's sort of the, like the through line through the story, but like, he's not always the main character and often sort of disappears for chunks of the movie when we're following, you know, the couple or, you know, uh, the, the, the heretic, uh, um, all of those, those side characters, like he, he's there and you know that like, that's sort of the ticking time bomb of this of this movie, but like um, <clears throat> Bergman is able to put together a strong enough cast that like he's able to just sort of uh, that Max von Sydow actually isn't in as much of the movie as you would expect, given that he's sort of the central character. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I and I guess just finishing up on uh, on John's really quick. I I, I like that he's. Like he he's definitely the id, but he also like has his sense of he still has a sense of right and wrong. Like he stops the that thief from trying to to hurt the lady. Like he still has a sense of like right and wrong. Um, but he sort of made up his mind about the whole crusades business. And he's like, this is all terrible. I'm gonna have a good time. I still know what to do. Like he's he there he's not conf, he's not conflicted in any sort of way. And uh, it's especially when we talk about. <laughs> him in the next movie that's a that's a very yes yeah. it shows a it's show, he's just a great character to watch in this movie but also as an actor he's got a huge range without a doubt uh, his range is phenomenal yeah i i think it's almost unfair to say he's the id he, he he's the realist he is the one who um isn't worried about the affairs of the heavens or below he's he is in the now he's of the earth he is going to deal with what's in front of him and get through it um which is kind of makes him really more than anyone else kind of the kind of the leveling point for the rest of the film so on the one side you have antonius block who's struggling with all of this stuff and you know is 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 the one who's really world weary from the crusades and and his faith being tested now on the other side Hopefully I don't screw up these names. You have Yoff, the juggler, and his wife Mia, played by and I'm gonna to apologize in advance to listeners because I am I just delighted in a way that is borderline shameful for the female characters in the works of Bergman. BB Anderson is a heavenly vision in this film. She's filmed that way very much on purpose. The first time we see her, it's a vision of um, Yoff the juggler wakes up and he walks outside and he has this vision of uh, Mary leading the infant Jesus. And it's really when you come back to it, it's 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 his wife, B.B. Anderson, who is is just you know, a, a clown in the troupe with her son. But that's how he sees them. And uh Bergman is very aware of what B.B. Anderson looks like at this point in 1957. Uh, they are together. They are a couple. Uh, and he knows how to light and film uh, women in such a way that makes them heavenly and and of a grace that uh, few people can match in cinema. Um, so, you know, you have Antonius Block 
on the one side, you have Jean's right down the middle, and then on the other side, you have this this circus troupe. You have John, you have Joff, you have Mia, and you have um, Jonas. Jonas Scat, the kind of conniving uh, ne'er do well who's just kind of in it for himself and is what it is. Um, but they are the people of the earth. They're the people who are living and delighted and finding the joys in the moment. Um, so just when you have that kind of circle and and you put someone just to get back to our <laughs> Anton Valbrook of the show, um, you, you get back to Gunnar Bjornstrand as this, as, as the center, you see how pivotal his role is and, and just how great he is in it. I kind of lost the thread there, but I mean, I just, I, it's, if, if there's anything you asked me earlier, what am I drawn to in the film now? It's the performances and the way that Bergman frames the performances. He loves his characters. He loves the characters that we love. He loves the characters we hate. Um, and it's, it's a rare director that will film the entire spectrum of characters like that with such love. Um, and I think that more than anything else is what I take away from the movie at this point. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, I think that the, I think that the framing of it is a good chance for us to uh, sort of transition to. I think what should we we have to like if we're going to talk about Seven Seal, we have to talk about the cinematography. Um, yes. I was actually surprised. I was actually surprised that this um, that this one is actually shot by uh, Gunnar Fisher. Gunnar Fisher, I think yeah. You, yeah, you because uh, I think he had two cinematographers that he worked with and i think gunner fisher was the first but the one that most people associate him with was the is uh sven Nykist, the, if i'm yeah. saying his name right because that was who i that was who woody allen used uh and right. <laughs> so i i made a not that i made a mistake but yeah so sven Nykist is who i thought of because he's so tied into bergman but in fact gunner fisher um was the cinematographer of both of the films that we're going to talk about today yeah but i mean it, it's like i mean Bergman has enough material that we could definitely do a sequel episode at some point where uh, Nyquist will come up. But uh, yeah, no, in this particular case, uh, these are both with his his previous one. Uh, (laughs) I was watching some uh, I was watching some Criterion bonus feature where someone was asking about Gunnar Fisher and to someone who had worked with Bergman. And he's like, yeah, sometimes things happen between Bergman and his collaborators and then they stop working together. And just, I was like, that's super cr- like cryptic and like <laughs> ill-defined. Uh, but yeah, no, the, 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 I mean, this is the, the, the shots of, uh, of the chess game, the, the shot of, even of like death's introduction where he's just sort of holding out his cape with one arm. Uh, the, the dance scene when, when uh, Joff is, has his vision at the end of the movie of death leading our merry troop of people uh, in in the dance that is presumably to their death um, that his wife can't see like that that shot of them sort of all holding hands dancing together like this stuff shows up on dorm room posters and I think for an absolutely valid reason. So even just the scene of um, even like if you take aside the more striking themes uh, the, the more striking scenes the dance with death, the game of chess on the beach, things like that. Even just an innocuous scene, probably my favorite scene in the entire film is the scene where Antonius block meets the circus troupe and Mia invites him to lunch and the lunch is milk and strawberries. And they sit and they have a conversation 
And it's, it's, it's the pivotal scene in the film because spoilers, look, this ends with most everybody dying. <laughs> Hence the dance. It sure of death. does. But it's an acceptable death because Antonius Block has found the one thing that kind of brings his faith and his belief back. And it's, and he finds that in this scene, in this scene where he shares a simple lunch with simple people and just reflects on life, looks at a, a, a young child who's kind of new to the world, has the taste of fresh milk and fresh strawberries. And he realizes this is a moment. This is a moment to remember. This is a moment to cherish. Um, and what's great about the movie is you don't realize that that's what that scene is at the time that you're watching the scene. But Bergman knows that's the scene and the way that he films it, it's, it's gorgeous. It might be one of the most beautiful black and white sequences I've ever seen on film. Um, just how relaxed everybody is, how at ease everybody is, how you see the planes of Block's face kind of soften as he shares this meal with this very poor, but very, um, vibrant and alive family. Um, so even something like that. Uh, it, it's just so gorgeously shot, so gorgeously framed, so gorgeously lit. Um, and then on the opposite side of the coin, um, one of the great sequences that I want to just call attention to is there's a whole sequence where there's a witch supposedly going to be put to death um, because she's spoken to Satan. And, you know, Block, who's now – he knows death. He he has had this intimate chess game going on over the course of the film. He sees this poor woman who's being um, put to death. He knows that she's crazy and it's not that she actually knows Satan. Um, and all the sequences there and the sequence when she's finally kind of put to the cross and is about to be burned, it's it's gorgeous. Even in its intensity, even in its vibrant kind of um, shockingness. Uh, Bergman can't film a scene that looks ugly, you know, in this film. Uh, the way he and Gunnar Fisher work together, it's it it's sublime. More so than the next film we'll talk about. I, I mean, this is just one of the most beautiful, beautifully shot films I've I, I've ever seen. And, and again, I, I can have all of that and still feel like, hey, you know, at this point, there's very little left for the film to kind of. Um, surprise me with so at this point it's just become more of a comfortable let's just sit and revel in just how beautiful how beautifully bergman puts every piece together to get to his inevitable conclusion that that feels like actually a great way to sort of sum up the movie is like this is a classic album that you just you know inside it out at a certain point and you can just play it and like just sort of let it go and you're just going to be like yeah i'm going to revisit sort of one of the all-time greats and just sort of let it sort of flow through me so we kicked off the episode with probably the most and I don't want to belittle the film by saying the most obvious of Bergman picks because it's, it's, it's probably in the echelon of what's considered not only his greatest films, but some of the greatest films of all time. And when we talked about earlier, when you think about Bergman, you think about films like that. You think about the seven seal. You think about films like, um, wild strawberries or persona, these kind of heady psychological thematic 
wonders of cinema. Um, but he wasn't always like that. Um, so what I wanted to do was kind of turn the tables a little bit, talk about something much simpler. I want to talk about sex comedies. Specifically, I want to talk about 1955's Smiles of a Summer Night, which is really the film that allowed Bergman to become the director that we mainly know him for. This was the huge <clears throat> success after a string of small Good, but kind of not the best received films in Sweden. This is the one that kind of became the international sensation, opened up the doors for him with his production company uh, and allowed him a little bit more free reign to do the types of films that he wanted to do. So you could say without the sex rompous comedy of Smiles of a Summer Night, it's possible we wouldn't have Seven Seal or Wild Strawberries, um, or this great <laughs> performance, again, by Gunnar Bjornstrand, who is the firm lead of this movie. Um, <clears throat> when I say sex comedy, again, this is 1955. Although, one of the things that really strikes me about the film is how kind of direct and forthright and risque and erotic this film is for a 1955 sex comedy. It is Swedish. I mean, make of that <laughs> what you will, but... Basically, it is your typical story of um, men versus the women. The men in this film, for the most part, are just disgusting, stupid, stupid men. The women are um, smarter, but they're hurt because of society and the way that um, women are played in a role against men in this time frame. Bergman is well aware of that. For 1955, he takes and places the film at the turn of the century. One of the things I read about Smiles of a Summer Night was when you're talking about comedy and you want to talk about certain things, sometimes making it a period piece makes it easier. And there are laughs to be gotten. There's, there's certain sequences with a car. There's sequences that go on over, over the course of the film that can only lend themselves because of the time period in which they're set. So it, it's basically the story of a lawyer, um, Frederick Egerman, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, who uh, had lost his wife uh, earlier on, marries a beautiful young woman who is 20, 25 years his junior. Uh, she's about the same age as his son. His son is in love with his wife. Uh, he is in love with an actress who is kind of the coy, worldly person who is consequently having an affair with another man whose wife is the best friend of his now young wife. You can start to see how all of these things kind of tie together. Um, all of that aside, there's also the precociousness of um, Frederick Egerman's housekeeper Petra, played by the ridiculously stunning and um, erotic Harriet Anderson. No relation to B.B. Anderson, although B.B. Anderson is in this movie in a very small role as one of the actresses who appears with the actress that Frederick Egerman is in love with. Essentially, Everyone is conflicted about their feelings. Everybody wants the person that they don't have. Um, it takes a magical night and a party at an old woman's house for the tables to all be turned, for mistaken identities to occur, for elopements to occur, for a round of Russian roulette to occur, for everyone to be with who they are meant to be with. As um, the summer night smiles over the course of the evening three times and bestows the love to where it justly belongs. That's really it. I mean, this is... Very much just 
a comedy. It has commentary about um, how men treat women, the role of women versus men, what love means, uh, sexual desire, and, and the freedom for sexual desire. But all of that is in service to really just a delightful plot, a plot that was wholly lifted um, by Woody Allen. If you've ever seen his film, uh, Midnight, Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, that's pretty much lifted, uh, lifts this film in its entirety with the, the kind of swapping of lovers and this and that and, 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 and the talk about love. It all really came from here. So, um, John, the way that I wanted to kind of start this was, again, I purposely wanted to get a film to you that was very different from how we typically conceive of Bergman. So I wanted to just get kind of what was your first thought seeing this and comparing it to what you knew of Bergman, particularly with The Seven Seal? What'd you think of it? And let's just then jump into Gunnar Bjornstrand and just keep the love fest going for that guy in this episode. <laughs> this is 100% not what you think of when you think of Bergman. The With some uh, so with some definite exceptions, there's some moments there where you're like, okay, I can I can feel, um, <clears throat> I can feel the intensity uh, yes. of it. Uh, uh, th- there's some definitely some intense moments in this uh, in this movie. Uh, f- f- again, for being a 1955 sex comedy, uh, th- my favorite of which being the uh, when the countess, uh, who is the friend of the young wife uh, starts spouting off about how much she hates her husband and men in general. And she's giving this like really impassioned, spiteful monologue directly into the camera. Like you, you, if (laughs) not that I'm self-defensive about myself as a person, like I, I'm pretty sure I'm a good dude, but like I watched that and watching this woman yell at me about how men are terrible and evil and awful. I'm just like, uh, I feel uncomfortable. Um, that feels like a nice, like Bergman touch of like we're gonna, you know, we're gonna uh, dial dial up the pr- pressure just a little bit, just to you know get people a bit uneasy in a way that, uh, um, in a, in a way that you know you would expect from more serious Bergman movies, I guess. Yeah, well, that's a so that's that's one of the things that really draws me to this film and and, and makes it one that I can watch a lot more often than maybe some of other Bergman's films is that he is very much aware of how shitty men are. Um, and he is, this is a movie that is so firmly on the side of the women that it's kind of crazy. Um, you have, um, Frederick Egerman, Gunnar Bjornstrand, who basically wants, he wants his angel and he wants his whore. Basically he, so he is married to young Anne who is only 20 years old. He's at least double her age. They've never had sex because he doesn't want to sully her because she's so innocent and beautiful. He won't touch her, which completely then disrespects. She is very uh, vocal about the yearnings that she is feeling as a young woman, which he completely ignores, cheats on her or tries to cheat on her with his former lover, Desiree Armfeld, who, um, oh man, Ava Dahlbeck, who is also just this kind of- She's the MVP, I think. Yeah, she uh, is of one of the MVPs. Well, she's my n- yeah. number two MVP because I, I'm going to talk about Petra, the, the main <laughs> okay. at length in this movie. Um, but y- y- you have Frederick, who's like that. You have his son, Henrik Egerman, who is the religious kind of, I am above all of this. 
Um, except when he's not. And when he's not, he blames the women. It's that kind of, I blame you for lowering me to my base nature kind of bullshit. Um, and he he's is the angsty teen of this movie. He's the sure. angsty teen, but he's the angsty teen who p- spills out all of his own insecurities um, on the female side. And then you have the um, count, Carl Magnus Malcolm, just the total douchebag who's completely upfront of, yes, uh, no one may touch my wife. You can fool around with my mistress as much as you want, but if you touch my wife, I become a tiger, he says. Um, and then later in the movie, he actually reverses it, where he says the opposite, and he, he says, does. if you miss... Yeah, he 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 completely contradicts himself. Well, th- th- that's like, how stupid he is, and the reason he contradicts himself is because of the machinations of the women, who then you know draw this plan out to kind of get everybody to where they should be um so the 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 men to a t with the exception of frid the <laughs> the um kind of butler handyman of the old maid's house um they're they're just despicable to a t and the movie is really about how the women come to realize this and then over the course of one magical party evening um including <laughs> a trapdoor bed that one of the best moments of this film is there is there are these connecting rooms and the way that it's set up is you press a button the wall opens up and the bed in the other room because at this time obviously men and women slept in separate beds even if those beds were next to each other the bed slides out a canopy falls over to it and a naked cherub blows a horn so that the person as you in the next do room, as you do come on this is everyone as you has do, this so that they could have a dalliance and uh, yeah. just little things like that things like that um just make this movie kind of a ridiculous delight and still stays firmly in the realm of bergman you were talking before about how intense the scene is where charlotte um the wife of the count who's the total douchebag um, she talks about how much she hates him because of how he so wantonly and brazenly cheats on her and doesn't think anything of it. There are a couple other moments. Um, I don't know if you got the same vibe that I did. There's a clock that they show a couple of times when the clock goes off and the clock is this like fearful person being chased by death. I, I I I couldn't quite get my head around that, but I definitely saw it and I was like, this feels It feels so weird, right? It doesn't yeah, feel it does, tonally yeah. of the same thing as the sex comedy. It's super heavy-handed. Um and then there's this huge dinner scene. So they get everybody at dinner and they've arranged the tables, the table so like like the matron is at one side of the table, and literally everybody else is at the opposite side of the table, and they're all sitting in different positions because of the way that the women set it up. And uh, these huge emotional moments happen. And when they happen, particularly around Henrik, who just cannot take the talk of cheating and placing bets to see if one can seduce the other, when he finally freaks out, the music comes into this (laughs) horrific, intense sting, which is so melodramatic that I just wound up cracking up every time it happened. It's literally just this light dinner music. And then when it happens, you just hear this bang. And it closes in on Hendrick's face and he's pulling his hair out with histrionics because he is the angsty teen of, of, of the group. And it's so Bergman, but at the same time, it's hilarious. He, he, he makes it work in a comedic setting. And <laughs> again, there's not a lot to glean from this movie. It's, it's pretty much a surface film. It's all about the machinations and the plot to draw people together. Um, 
But I find it a delight in a way that I don't find some of his other heavier, more thematic films a delight. And I'm sure that's the intent. You know, there's a lot more to get out of something like Cries and Whispers or Persona or, um, you know, even Fanny and Al and Alexander. If we do another Bergman episode, we'll have to do a color Bergman episode at one point to just talk about those films. But, uh, it, it's just, it was so, relaxing to see and just watch something like this let the performances play out kind of marvel for someone brought up in america where at least in that time frame when you watch movies from the 50s and 60s sexuality was so taboo and to see it so openly expressed here and used to such wonderful effect um to me this was a breath of of uh fresh air and i i can't say enough about again um how stuck up and <laughs> And pretentious um, Gunnar Bjornstrand plays. He it, it, again two years earlier, but he, he's got like it looks like shoe polish in his hair. Uh, he is this stiff uppity lawyer. It is the complete polar opposite of Jans or Johns from the Seven Seal, and he makes it work, man. He's a ridiculous delight in this movie. He is absolutely ridiculous. And I believe the comparison I made to you last night when I was watching it again was he's basically Ron Burgundy. He is um, he, he's Ron Burgundy. <laughs> he, he, and, and that's why when you, like, if, if I did have, like, if I did have one thing that sits odd with me about this movie, it is the, like, that he meets his wife when she's 16 and then marries her a year later. Like if we want to talk about the Woody Allen of it all, maybe, you know, Woody <laughs> Allen's pulling the wrong lessons. You can see why Woody Allen Berman was movies. really drawn to this film. Yeah. But like, and, and they take care to like, say that like, well, that he hasn't despoiled her yet. And I'm just like, Oh, this is so gross. But because the movie is so good, like, like Anchorman, the movie is so good about making its protagonist, a complete buffoon he you know is brash and he does a lot of this stuff but then you also see in this movie he especially when he's with uh with eva dahlbeck he does have like a lot of vulnerability to him and so you can laugh at him and you should laugh at him because he's ridiculous he's an utter buffoon um, he, in this film he, you are you are meant to make fun of him but then he also is able to pull off uh at least as far as like once you get the sense that like, okay, they haven't had sex and he actually wants to be with someone else who is more age appropriate and who is frankly actually really good. And Eva Dahlbeck even makes fun of him for her, you know, being able to manage his child bride. Yeah. I'm like, okay, like I, these two are a good match for each other. And like the movie has a sense of like how to, to how to handle that. Admittedly, like the movie knows uh, how completely the... ridiculous that scenario is because there's the one scene where they go to. So everything winds up. Eva Dahlbrook, um, T Desiree Armfeld, the at the actress, she invites all of the players to her mother's house for a party. And everything is going to happen over the, the course of the evening at the mother's house at this party. And uh, <laughs> when they get to the party, um, Agerman's the first one there with his wife and his son. And Eggerman is is sitting on the lawn with the mother, the the old matron, watching you know everyone else fool around. <laughs> and the matron says, "Boy, your children are so delightful, especially your young daughter." And he goes, "That's my wife." She just the the look she gives him is like, "Oh, okay." And I I I forget what she says, but it's so disdainful and just so you're such a schmuck. <laughs> to, yeah, to uh, is... Eggerman. It, it, everyone knows th there is not a moment where you think these men are any good at all. 
You really don't. Yeah. Um, this is all about the women. I mean, and to a T, Ava Dahlbeck as the actress. Um, um, I'm looking up, up, up the names now. Margit Kalkvist as Countess Charlotte Malcolm. She's the one who is married to the douchebag. Um, Anne is played by Ula Jacobson. Just, just gorgeous. And she, she plays it so wonderfully. There's a scene where, um, she expresses, there is a scene where her and Petra, and again, I will talk about Petra in a moment. Petra is the maid of the Agerman household, played by Harriet Anderson. I'm going to recommend her in another film for our recommendation set. But, uh, she is, uh, she is the carnal delight of the film. She has had sex with many people multiple times. She has seduced Henrik, um, in the beginning of, of the film. She is just looking to have fun and improve her station. And there's this really kind of weird scene where her and Anne are talking and Anne admits she's a virgin. And, you know, she asks questions about sex to Petra and Petra's answering them. And then they kind of have like a pillow fight and they roll around on the bed and they cover themselves. And I'm starting to get uncomfortable not knowing what's going on. But... the purpose of the scene is not the scene. The purpose of the scene is to set up what happens in the next scene, which is Anne now kind of full of all these feelings and feeling kind of, you know, the, the lust of a 20 year old woman who is entitled to feel these feelings goes to her husband, sits in his lap and tries to push away his cigar and initiate something like you get the sense this is what she's trying to do and he does not want anything to do with it and it is it is it's revolting in that it just brings to light that this is a dirtbag who he wants he wants to have his cake and eat it too he he wants both sides of the coin so it 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 does so many things in that one scene it it shows that they are not right for each other. If you thought they were right before, you know they're not right for each other now. It shows, you know, Anne's feelings and, and, and that they need to come out in some fashion. It shows that Gunner is just making the wrong decisions. Um, Frederick is making the wrong decisions. So when it comes to the end of the film, when he ultimately ends up with Ava, who may or may not have a son that was fathered by him. She's named her son Frederick and won't tell him who the father is. She says it is her child alone and that's the end of it. Um, it, it, it just goes to show like this is a, this is, this is a guy with no, uh, no control. He has no kind of onus as to what he should be doing. So it takes these women to kind of set the control for him. And it's, it's such a, it's, it's such a wonderful scene for how it kind of sets up Anne's eventual kind of ending, which is she does fall in love with someone her own age. She falls in love with Henrik. They elope and they kind of run away together, leaving, leaving Frederick to, <laughs> uh, to be consoled by the wife of the count who then finds them and has a round of Russian roulette, which he loses. Turns out it was only soot. It wasn't a bullet. Uh, and, and brings him back to the arms of the only person he could ever be honest with, which was Ava um, Dahlbeck, Desiree Armfeld. Uh, again, it's all machination. It's all plot. It, it, there's nothing here more beyond men are pigs and women are smart. I don't think there's a larger theme here, but it's all in the how that story gets played out. And it, it Especially like when you, yeah, when you start having to like draw like flow charts of who's, uh, who's in love with who, but is connected to who, um, 
I think my favorite, like, I think what the the success of this movie, um, for me, pin gets pinned mostly on the 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 resolution of the Russian roulette scene, because for as ridiculous as the uh, the as ridiculous as uh, as Frederick is, um, the when he has his confrontation when he has his Russian roulette game with with the count, um, and that's that's a very like. That scene at Russian roulette is very tense, like that. They and yeah. and it, it is played for the 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 tension that it needs uh, to have. And when on on Frederick's second go at the gun, uh, it cuts outside and uh, to the to the women, and you hear a gunshot. And then you see they they're horrified, and they look inside, and they see the count with the gun. And the implication is that. Uh, that he, that Frederick lost, that he's dead. Again, and a very was, Bergman moment. Like this, this movie yeah. just took a turn, right? Yeah, this is it, 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 it. Took a turn, and he doesn't. He doesn't uh, break. The count doesn't break character until he, uh, after he's closed the door and left the thing, he collapses and starts giggling. And then it's when you find out it's uh, that he just put soot in the gun, and so he's just played a a terrifying prank on the. And which is like it's a nice way to end the count's story, which is just he's still kind of a, a douche, but yeah. like it's 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 funny and and like again you're still laughing because Frederick's an idiot too. But then when Frederick after it's ends done, the film and, with soot all over his face, like he literally yeah, ends the film with yeah. mud in his eye, basically. Yeah, like well, and that but then that when uh, when Desiree comes in to console him, and like at this point he has soot in his eye, his son has eloped with his wife, uh, which. God, I I can't even start to untangle that one. <laughs> uh, but uh, but when when she comes in and starts to sort of console and comfort him, there's actual pathos in that. Yeah. Like like you've you I mean I'm always on Team Desiree for for this movie, but like in that movie he has been brought so low and so humiliated that uh, when she sort of like hangs out with him and sort of connects back with him, I I. I feel sympathy for the guy. And it's like, yeah, this is actually a good, these two people are actually the connection that makes sense and is good. And I want, and it happens and they, and they totally earn the ending. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, she, she says to him, right. I mean, the, the, the crux of that whole relationship is when he said to her earlier, you're the only person I can be myself with. And here he is, he has been essentially assassinated by Russian roulette. He has got soot all over his face. His wife has left him for his son. There is no lower a situation this man can come to in this film. And she reminds him of that. She's like, do you, did you not forget? You said yourself, I'm the only person you can be yourself around. You know, this is why you, this is okay. You're here for that. And he kind of lets that, sit and and that's how it in a normal movie that's where it would end but john i say to you it doesn't end there it doesn't end with frederick and ava uh frederick and desiree um it ends with petra bb anderson <laughs> and it ends with ake friedel as frid that's the last scene of the movie them waking up at the third smile of a summer's night 
She has now convinced this guy to marry her. He doesn't have a care in the world. He is, he is the id. He is the lover of life. He is the here and the now. He is the base instinct. He is the perfect match for Petra, uh, who now realizes that all this time she had been striving to up her station by sleeping with all these different people. Uh, she now finds herself with a commoner who accepts her for what she is, takes her for what she is. And they, they meet together and the morning comes, they stretch, they wake up. It's a gorgeous, it's one of the most gorgeous sets of, of the movie. If you have the criterion edition, that's what the cover is made of. Um, and they leave there. And I just have to think again at this time, um, Bergman had just started his relationship with B.B. Anderson, but before he was in a relationship with B.B. Anderson, he was in a relationship with Harriet Anderson, <laughs> which started uh, from the beginning. Her first three or four films were with Igmar Bergman, and uh, she'd done a few more films with him at that point. It's nice to know that even if he has problems with his cinematographers and his other collaborators, his leading women, he seems to maintain a strong relationship with even after their affairs are over. Um Bergman kind of gives Petra her due as well. Uh, this is typically in a movie like this, the side characters like, like Petra and Frid wouldn't really have a place here, but I think it's striking that he ends the film with them. Um, because as much as this is a story about men and women, it's also a story about class and it's also a story about station. Uh, and I, and I, 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 I just love the amount of time that he gives to Petra and then having her meet her match in a commoner when she's been trying so hard to lay the son of the lawyer to increase her station. I think it's just another little fun tor uh, quirk of the movie. And I'll say this again, like I said for B.B. Anderson, Bergman knows how to film women. I, it, it's, this is a guy who loved women, loved to film them a certain way. And I have given this a lot of thought. I've watched this film twice in the last two weeks. And I really try to think about another woman who walks quite the way that Petra walks in this film. And she even comments like on the way that she walks. I don't know that anyone walks quite like Harriet Anderson does as Petra in this film. It is a marvel of form and grace and something that if I may bow to my baser instinct for a moment, um, I might love above everything else in smiles of a summer night. She is an utter delight in this film and is lit in such a way that you can't help but keep your eyes on her every minute she's on the screen. That's all I'll I mean, say about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's totally fair. Cause yeah, Petra is amazing. Like if she, if she by means of like plot, is not as central to the story like she's like she's just like buoyant and just just radiates energy everywhere she goes and she has like there's she doesn't have any sort of like uh conflictedness about her sexuality it's just yeah no it's fine it's great it's it's wonderful she's the counterpoint the, to Anne, basically i mean if she has yeah. a function in the story is to show Anne what she is missing by being yeah. repressed by frederick all this time Right. And, and 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 she doesn't and there, there's no point at which she ever like you feel any sort of like sense of angst coming from her when she decides that like oh i should like when she changes or when, when she realizes that she wants to marry fred it's not like there's any sort of like torment about it it's just i've been doing my thing been doing my thing for so long you're pretty great let's 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 go for it yeah. like there's there's no uh the, the 
the, the depression that you, you normally associate with Bergman films has nothing to do with with uh, with Petra. She's just sort of this uh, wonderful uh, presence that just sort of floats throughout uh, the movie. And any and every time you ch- and they check in on her often enough that like she she has that importance. She has that uh, that meaning to the story, um, but is sort of like especially in contrast to someone like you know the uh henrik the the son yeah. who is just sort of like you know uh again just a super angsty teen that's uh that's his whole deal and uh uh and at one point his dad's trying to say like women don't take this stuff nearly as seriously as as guys do uh and and she's sort of the embodiment of that it's like yeah it's fine you 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 know it's your first time things are gonna be awkward yeah. it's fine don't worry about it it's all good <laughs> She is, uh, and again, I have to apologize, but there, I, I, she is. She, the second she walks onto screen, she is magnetic, and she knows it, and she plays it that way. I mean, there is that scene where she chastises Henrik for watching her walk, and then she continues to walk and slightly exaggerates it, and it is, it's one of the most beautiful walks I've ever seen in all of cinema. I, I can't get around it. And now it's time for our recommendation segment. We do every episode where we recommend some movies that are of similar sorts, uh, either whether directly or loosely connected. So, Chris, what do you got for us today? So, no surprise, I'm going to throw out a couple real quick Bergman films to check out as well. Um, if this is your first exposure to Bergman and you want to get a little bit deeper, I'm going to go in two different directions. We're going to go a little bit further out and then a little bit further behind. So, further out first, um, one of my favorite Bergman films right after after the seventh seal is wild strawberries. Um, this also has the great Gunnar Bjornstrand, but really this is a movie about age. It's a movie about time. It's door. It, it, it stars BB Anderson. Isn't it? It also stars Victor Sjornstrom. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. And it's about a, um, grouchy professor, um, who is kind of at the end of his life. And it's basically just, about that. I don't want to talk too much more about plot. It really starts to dive a little bit more into surrealism and imagery and kind of thematic pieces that are not as linear and direct in plot as things like The Seven Seal is. So this is where like Bergman starts to kind of move a little bit more into territory that's symbolic and allegory. It's a wonderful film, though. Um, give it a chance. It still has <clears throat> a linear plot that you can follow if you just want to go for the story and the performances. But there's a lot of meat in there that talks about nightmares and age and death and life and regret, um, which are a lot of the themes that Bergman would touch on as he kind of progressed in his career. So that's number one. Number two, I want to take it back. I want to talk about Harriet Anderson some more because she was really one of the first kind of ingenues and muses for Bergman. Um, so before Smiles of the Summer Night, she was the star of his 1953 film, Summer with Monica. Um, man, this is, again, it's a movie about love. It's a movie about sexuality. It's a movie about lust. And it, it is a, it is a performance of a lifetime for Harriet Anderson. She's kind of fresh out of school at, at this point. This is one of her earliest films. And it's, it's very upfront. It's very direct. There's nothing to read into this. It's about a young woman's kind of sexual awakening. And it's just beautiful for the performances. It, it's 
I'm not going to say it's classic upper echelon Bergman, but I think it's important to kind of see where directors start before you get into their masterworks. And with a lot of directors of this time period, um, they're very much a part of the studio system. I mean, whether you're in the, ho- the, ho- the Hollywood studio system or whether you're in the Swedish studio system like Bergman was. So it's interesting to see how he's able to kind of find his voice and find his rhythm and find the themes that he wants to talk about in the earlier work. So if you're going to go anywhere, there's things like Sawdust and Tinsel, there's things like Summer Interlude, but Summer with Monica is probably the one that I would point to as a great starting point to kind of see early Bergman trying to find his voice and then make that line from Summer of Monica to Smiles of a Summer Night to Seven Seal to Wild Strawberries to things like Persona and beyond. So um, enjoy that. Dive in, uh, get 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 your feet with with some Bergman, and uh, I'll hand it off to you, John. What do you got? So in the uh, in the last week or so of watching, you know, scattershot uh, stuff with Bergman again, he has so many films uh, that you can kind of just sort of pick stuff at random, and and that's kind of what I did, um, just to see sort of again trying to expand the number of movies of his that I'd seen. Um, there was a theme throughout the movies that I ended up picking about like uh, relationships and relationships fraught with tension and uh, that are degrading and that kind of thing. And uh, for me, the one I felt within that framework that worked the best for me was 1968's Shame uh, starring Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman. Um, This is a, this is a story about a couple who, uh, who become caught up in a war that's happening. It's not entirely the, the details of the war are sort of vaguely sketched out. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily meant to be a specific war, but they're they're as the war progresses and as the violence around them happens, the it, it's, it's reflected not only in sort of the very external world uh, of the film, but also their relationship breaks down as well. And uh, this movie seems to be about, I mean, <clears throat> Bergman denied that this was ever a, a movie about Vietnam, but it was shot during Vietnam and is sort of, you could tell that this is sort of, th- this functions as a commentary on war um, and specifically how it impacts the relationship. And I thought that uh, this movie, I think actually does the scale. Like when we were talking about um, moments in seventh seal where it feels like a bigger scale of production. I think there's definitely stuff in this movie that hits that note as well, especially as it relates to the army stuff that uh, shows up here and there, but it's, it's two very good performances from Ullman and Sadow. And yeah, it's uh I thought this was probably one of, uh, I mean, I, I, I know that we talked, uh, during the break about how I still have to, you know, keep whale- banging my head against persona until I understand it. But, uh, as shame, it feels like an early standout for me as far as one that I was just able to like, um, as able to grasp without, you know, needing a, a, a lot more supplemental material. Uh, so it's one I definitely recommend. So I'd like to make two points, John, just to what you said. So one, um, I, I don't think I've uh, cracked the egg of Persona yet either, even though I do enjoy it. And uh, two, I have not seen Shame, so I will rectify that post-haste. But I think you might be burying the lead a little bit because I look at the cast and I see that our man Gunnar Bjornstrand is also in Shame. Which means yeah, yes, I need to yes, see this yes. even sooner than I had intended to. 
he he plays a he, he's sort of a supporting role in this, but essentially he plays a uh, a person who's let's say who, get, who also gets caught up uh, uh, in the in the war and has some uh, potential power over our main couple in a way that is ambiguous in ways that drives tension uh uh it's uh it, i mean it's yeah he's he's good it's just he's uh definitely a, a minor part in this one i'll take it anyway but I yes his presence it. means you should go check it out <laughs> sounds good <laughs> well uh yeah this ended up being uh far less depressing uh of an episode uh than you'd expect that talking about bergman it was uh it was a bunch of fun uh i i at this point have no I'm completely uh, devoid of any sort of thought of how to wish everyone well other than just, I hope you're doing well. I can't be specific because that, you know, trying to nail down any sort of like stay hydrated or wear a mask or anything just feels uh, like, you know, any sort of predictions around the future just feels uh, completely meaningless at this point. But uh, as always, it's been heck of a good time getting to chat with you i hope everyone else is doing uh, all right out there and uh yeah i guess we'll uh, wrap it up for now oh i guess i should say um we have a website i think i forgot to mention that last time but we still have a website cinemaduel.com uh i'm now six parts deep into my agnes varda box set series so if you want to uh and actually the one that we just put up uh, on the on her california films is probably one of my favorite ones i've done so far so definitely check that out uh we're still on spotify if that's uh, how you prefer to do podcasts uh anything else you can think of chris uh no we're not going anywhere i we paid for the website, so it'll be around. Um, I haven't written as much as I had wanted to. It's, it's funny. I've really been trying to just kind of follow my passion where it leads me. Um, and strangely, it's led me kind of away from films a little bit. Um, I still love to watch. I haven't been watching nearly as much as I thought I would. I've been doing a lot more music listening right now. So I am back on... Uh, I have a website, Consuming the Tangible. It's consumethetangible.com, and I've been writing about kind of the music that I find there. So if you're interested in music that's uh, kind of all over the place, I think the last one I put out was about the black metal band Stormkeep. But before that, it was about jazz funk uh, aficionado Cleveland Payton, uh, Cleveland Eaton, rather. And before that, it was Cool in the Gang. So uh, I'm doing a lot of writing there. I will be getting back to Cinema Duel shortly. I have a couple of films that I watch that I want to write up. So We'll be there. And I'm really glad if I can end it just on, I'm glad that you said this about Bergman, that it didn't seem to be as dismal as you thought it might be. Uh, that should be the thing that people take away from stuff like this. I think sometimes when you hear Ingmar Bergman and you think about the seventh seal or persona, it can be a little bit of a barrier to entry just because of the reputation that he has as a filmmaker and the reputation that those films has. These films are very accessible and there's a lot of his work that is super easy to understand and doesn't belittle the talent at all. There is some amazing work that you can jump right into like the seventh seal um, that is super easy to understand. It's super direct and it's still fantastic and a pillar of filmmaking, you know, for the next 70 years um, or 65 years, however far on we are from the film. So hopefully this will kind of get you primed or prepped to kind of take those dives if you've been a little bit reluctant to do that. And uh, 
Uh, I couldn't ask for this podcast to do anything more than that, uh, except to just, of course, um, satiate my desire to talk to my buddy across the country uh, every month or so. So I appreciate it for that. Yeah. I mean, this is, if nothing else, our scheduled uh, Zoom time together. So uh, I, uh, I I need that stability in my life and uh, I cherish it <laughs> <Me> greatly. <too. laughs> so let's leave it at that, Jeff. Absolutely. We'll, uh, for people listening at home, uh, we'll catch you all next time. But uh, thanks again. And yeah, see ya. See ya.